This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today, today, let's call it Sunday, January 24th, 2021. The NBC Sports Network is shutting down at the end of this year. What could that mean for some of the business partners of NBC Universal? And we've got some upgrades to WWE stock from multiple, multiple stock analysts this week. How much money could WWE make at the first ever physically distanced, limited capacity, two-day pop culture extravaganza that is WrestleMania at Raymond James Stadium this year? How much money, in particular, ticket money, is there to be made? But most importantly, most importantly today, we are going to talk about the pressing issue around the banking concept of education in professional wrestling. Our good friend, Paulo Freire, will be unloading the real critical thought on us today. Professor Freire could not make it to the podcast today on account of his being deceased, so I will go it alone. But first... medium good week of professional wrestling television ratings this week. W Raw holding pretty firm with 1.8 million viewers. Nearly 8,000, 800,000 I should say, in the key demographic of 18 to 49. Smackdown on Friday night holding steady 2.2 million viewers or so the overnight ratings uh, published by showbizdaily.com tell us. NXT and AW going head to head with yet another big week of cable news viewership, but not as big as the two weeks prior. Uh, AW and NXT going head-to-head with coverage of the inauguration that following weeks where it faced off against impeachment coverage, and the week before that, the U.S. Capitol attack coverage. But NXT bouncing back up a good 20% in total audience from the prior week. AW Dynamite up about 12% from the prior week. AEW bringing about 850,000 viewers across the total audience with over 450 of those total viewers being in the key demo of 18 to 49. NXT, on the other hand, uh, about 660,000 viewers, almost 200,000 of those in the key demo. Uh, AEW ranking at number 33. Uh, Everything else in the, uh, the top 33 was either news coverage, an NBA game, or MTV's The Challenge. So AW coming at number 33, NXT off the top 50, down to number 64. One more Wednesday to go in the month of January, January 27th, next Wednesday, where, in theory, finally on a Wednesday night, NXT and AW will not have to go head-to-head with some sort of major world event, as hopefully the United States is a much more boring country for the next four years than it was for the prior four. Those are the micro WrestleNomics. Those are the, the week-to-week minutia of the pro wrestling television viewership landscape. But what about the big picture, the bigger picture, the macro WrestleNomics, if you will? 
W Raw, W SmackDown, uh, doing a lot better in general than they were, where they are really in a slump throughout the summer. Rebounding, of course, coinciding with the Thunderdome. But W Raw bouncing back well from where it was in December. Now W Raw, of course, not opposed by the NFL, by ESPN's Monday Night Football. The NFL regular season is over. The Bills are in the playoffs. AFC Championship game happening today. And it's not even the year 1994, but I digress. Raw with a strong bounce back from December. Stronger, a stronger January bounce back than the January 2020 bounce back from December 2019. That is not to say that viewership this January is higher than last year's January. No, but the bounce back from December is stronger by percent. Why look at television viewership from such a weird angle? Well, because, you know, all TV is down. All TV is down, and we try to find some sort of volume adjustment to look at the trends in a way that balances for the notion that all TV is down. But then, this story came out broken by the Wall Street Journal on Friday by Joe Flint and Lillian Lillian. Rizzo of the Wall Street Journal. NBC Universal is shutting down its sports cable channel, NBC Sports Network, NBCSN, at the end of the year and migrating much of its programming to its sister General Entertainment Network, USA, the company said. The premium properties of NBCSN and are the National Hockey League and NASCAR Auto Racing, both of which will start to transition to the USA Network this year. Some content will remain on both channels until NBCSN officially turns off the lights. NBC Universal informs staffers of the plan on Friday afternoon in a company memo. Quote, we're absolutely committed more than ever to live sports as a company and having such a huge platform like the USA Network airing some of our key sports content is great for our partners, distributors, viewers, and advertisers alike, said NBC Sports Group Chairman Pete Bevacqua is my attempt. The Wall Street Journal article goes on by putting high profile sports on the USA Network, NBC Universal, a unit of Comcast, is hoping to solve two problems with one move get rid of an underperforming asset and boost an already powerful one. English Premier Soccer will also have matches on USA. Uh, NBCSN has struggled to compete against bigger rivals such as Walt Disney's ESPN and Fox Corporation's sports, uh, Fox Sports cable network. While it has a large national reach, its ratings pale in comparison to its competition. Fox and Wall Street Journal, <laughs> full disclosure here, Fox Corp and Wall Street Journal parent News Corp share common ownership. They both belong to Rupert. Rupert. Oh, what does any of this have to do with the professional wrestling? Well, NBC Universal owns, obviously, as we implied, NBC Universal owns the USA Network, or is the USA Network, and WWE has two programs on the USA Network, WWE Raw and WWE NXT, uh, the latter airing on Wednesday night. And if I bust out my sports rights table that I made a few months back, where I have uh, tabled out for myself what networks own the rights to what sports in the U.S., then I will see that NBC Sports owns the rights to NHL games here in this country, 
unless you are fortunate like I am to be. I, th- I don't know. Actually, if, can, can we still pick up CBC here in Buffalo? I don't know. But anyway, uh, NBC Sports Network has been airing at least two regular season games weekly during the regular season for the NHL. Exclusively, they have weekly Wednesday night games, and they have some occasional Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday night games. Or so said my notes at the time, with weeknight playoff games and Stanley Cup final games, two and three. With plenty of uh, NHL games also airing on the NBC broadcast network. But with those Wednesday night, Wednesday night games going away from NBC SN with NBC SN folding, could those weekly Wednesday night games end up on the USA Network in NXT's time slot? Well, speaking of business between uh, the NXT brand and NBC Universal slash the USA Network, uh, the NXT TV deal, to my best belief, ends this coming fall, probably the end of September. A two-year deal is my belief that started in September 2019. 19, which would be ending in September 2021. The subject was asked about on the last WB earnings call in October, and Nick Khan uh, didn't divulge detail about how the negotiations were going or when the deal was in fact expiring, but presumably uh, that deal is being negotiated right now and uh, could, I, I don't know is the answer to all of these questions, but could NXT end up on a different night like Tuesday or Thursday, could NXT end up going to another network like maybe their friends at FS1? Who knows? What does it mean in terms of viewership for either NXT or AEW if they had a future in which they were not running head-to-head? Well, I think it would mean about a 20% increase in viewership for the both of them uh, if they were not running head-to-head. That's bared out in the occasions where they have uh, been preempted to other slots and they did not run head-to-head. And that's bared out in some of the information that we see related to DVR viewership, where, for example, about 20% of the viewership of AEW happens uh, after the fact via DVR. So it's not as if uh, NXT and or AEW would double their viewership if they were unopposed or would inherit all of the the wrestling viewers who are watching the other program. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not as clean as that. Or, or as uh, bene- beneficial to the programs as that. But, but there's about a 20% gain, I think, for each of those programs to make if they can finally have a, uh, a time in which they are not eating each other's lunch. Now, granted, NBC Universal owns a number of cable networks, including but not limited to the, the USA Network, obviously, Sci-Fi, the E! Network, CNBC, MSNBC, and certainly a number of others that are not jumping to mind right now. But the reporting does state that they're looking to move a lot of that sports programming that is on NBCSN over to the USA Network. Now, you may be asking yourself, what is the comparability in value between a NHL game on a Wednesday night and an episode of two-hour episode of NXT? Well, I don't know. I would guess the advertising dollars for an NHL game are better. But what's the viewership like? That's at least a question that I can answer. Well, most recently, and the NHL regular season just began again this month in January, and we've got a Chicago Blackhawks versus Tampa Bay Lightning game on NBCSN on January 13th 
which started at 8.06 p.m. Eastern, and it did a .34 demo rating and an average of 844,000 viewers. Uh, that is a bigger total audience than NXT delivers, and that is about double the demo that NXT delivers. That game in prime time, there was also a 5 o'clock p.m. game between the Pittsburgh Penguins and Philadelphia Flyers uh, that did similar, 0.32 in the demo and 932,000 viewers. And I've got some regular season numbers pre-pandemic in 2020. And I've got 10 games with an average demo rating of 0.13 and an average total audience of 404,000 viewers. Again, all of these games on Wednesdays and all running mostly in prime time with either 7.30 or 8 o'clock p.m. starts. And and that is a a demo that is, you know, a a 0.1413 demo that is slightly below what NXT normally delivers and a total audience substantially below what NXT normally delivers. But again, the advertising revenue that an NHL game, purely my guess, but I would expect that it delivers a better advertising uh, unit price than an NXT show does. And uh, cable rank for these games, the highest, 36, the lowest, 122 for... Again, I'm just talking about these 10 games that were in 2020. Wednesday night, primetime, NBCSN, in the months before the pandemic stopped the season. And as I look through the big Showbuzz Daily spreadsheet here, looking like NBC Sports Network in 2020, we might want to look at 19 as well, but in 2020, uh, doing on-par viewership with FS1. FS1 and NBCSN, very competitive. Uh... ESPN, the leader among the sports networks, obviously. Uh, both FS1 and NBCSN were doing better, though, than ESPN2. So it's not as if they weren't beating the secondary ESPN channel. They were. Um, we go back to 2019, though, a year with no pandemic and full normal, normal sports seasons. And FS1, in total viewership, uh, is just edging out NBCSN. In total audience, uh, NBCSN just barely edging out FS1 in key demo. So anyway, maybe that's something we see uh, more of in the future uh, in terms of networks that contain a lot of scripted entertainment, like the USA Network, uh, absorbing some of the some more sports content. Although, if I look back at the sports map again... Um, What's there left still to eat among the the major four team sports, uh, hockey, baseball, basketball, uh, NFL, football? They're all already living in one or another of those places, right? Turner has uh, baseball on TNT and TBS, so those are. I mean, I think of TNT and TBS as networks that do carry some scripted entertainment and other entertainment type uh, programs, and they've already got sports living there. Uh, FS1 has uh, baseball, Fox, of course, carrying football. All the all the football is on uh, broadcast or ESPN. So, yeah, maybe some further consolidation or cutting of uh, networks that primarily carry scripted entertainment. What good is a live a linear channel if all you're going to put on it is scripted entertainment? Yeah, it, it seems to me that the, 
the function of cable TV and of cable TV networks, linear television is going to be in the future evermore um, a place to to consume stuff that's live. And that's mainly sports and news. And scripted entertainment is just better to watch on demand through services like Netflix, Disney+, HBO Max, etc., etc. Because I can watch anything in their selection that I want, anytime I want, as much of it as I want, rather than to have to make an appointment to watch this thing. The sports or news, I get it because it's happening right now before the whole world. But anyway. And wrestling, I think, overlaps those two worlds and uh, leans slightly more toward the sports side because it is happening in non-pandemic times in front of thousands of people at a sports venue. And thus the enormous sports TV rights fees. But anyway, an update on the WrestleNomics 2020 full year report. We are up to 55 pages. Um, 5,514 words at this moment. Uh, it will include information on everything from co- company profiles, an original survey on net promoter score, company finances, media, key metrics, including lots of information about television viewership, pay-per-view buys, streaming video subscriptions, YouTube views, social media followers, live events, attendance, consumer products, merchandise sales, just WWEs, of course, select licensing partners, Google web search for companies, Google web search for wrestlers, the count of wrestlers with 10 matches or more by promotion, reception of major events, and then there'll be a whole other section that I'm working on with some insights and opinions. Again, that is the WrestleNomics 2020 full year report, a work in progress that will be out hopefully sometime around the very end of this month. Uh, two ways to get that. You can be a patron at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, support there for $5 a month, or I will be selling it individually on PayUp as well for a price to be determined. Anyway, how much does WWE stand to make from running two WrestleMania live events at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa on April, what is it now, the 10th and 11th, with limited capacity, maybe 15,000 people. I know there are reports of 25,000 people per event per day. Normally, a WrestleMania weekend for WWE would mean somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to $25 million in revenue, both from the various live events and from the high uh, merchandise sales. But the average ticket price for a WrestleMania ticket has been, over the years, over $200. If we go to WrestleMania in 2015, it was around $218. Following WrestleMania, around $217, around $223, $235 in 2018. And then in 2019, the most recent, ticketed WrestleMania, around $268 million. We're deriving this from, we're deriving this from the uh, paid attendances, the average paid attendances in North America that are reported by WWE in the key performance indicators where they break out average attendance both with and without WrestleMania. From there, we can determine within a range of a few thousand the actual paid attendance of WrestleMania. And then we look at the gate, which 
WWE publishes in a press release, usually the day after or the night of WrestleMania. And then we simply divide the paid attendance by the gate to get, let's say, an estimated average ticket price. And we get it within a range of a few dozen dollars. So if that average ticket price of uh, somewhere between $250 to $280 holds up in this WrestleMania environment with limited capacity over two days, which I'm not totally certain that it will, but maybe it will. I think it will depend on the seating configuration a great deal. Are there going to be uh, an, an even proportion of, of tickets, of, of seats throughout the stadium as there, as there would be in a normal full capacity setting? Of course, those sit- seats that are down there on the floor will be the most expensive. I think this, this things that are you know very close to to the ring and the aisle are usually the most expensive of seats, you know, priced in the thousands. And I'm not c- completely sure about what the demand will be like. Obviously, you're not going to be getting international fans coming in, but uh, uh, people seem to think that there are uh, there, there will be enough demand to sell this out. Nonetheless. If we take, let's say, 15,000 paid ticket sales for each day, that's a total of 30,000. Oh, we're doing math again. This is the best part of Russell Knox. 30,000, let's say, times 268, which was the median range that we got for 2019. So 30,000 times 268, that equals $8 million in ticket revenue that W stands to make if they sell it out and if they sell tickets that are of a average ticket price similar to uh, 2019. Then there's venue merchandise money to make for the first time in a year for WWE. And that could be uh, usually venue merch per head in North America is somewhere between nine and $12 for WrestleMania. One would think it would be much higher. Then there's the problem though, that you're going to have a lot of, and, and there's a problem in the math here of trying to make an estimate of you're going to have a lot of the same people going to both days. So I don't know if, uh, if I should be multiplying the average revenue per capita times 15,000 or 30,000 or some number in between those. Nonetheless, let's just say $13 per head. That might be low. But multiply that by 30,000, and we get another uh, 390,000. Is that correct? 13 times 30,000. Yeah, all right. Maybe as high as a half a million if uh, people are buying a lot of merchandise, and maybe they will. But anyway, that gets us to about $8.5 million. $8.5 million on an event that probably costs about that much to put on. That's probably preferable, though, still to just doing a WrestleMania at the Thunderdome where uh, you're going to be spending a lot of money on talent and maybe a uh, limited capacity WrestleMania with some fans in attendance helps sell the W Network subscriptions and perhaps the pay-per-views that go along with promoting WrestleMania then uh, does a better job of selling the media than just doing a WrestleMania at the Thunderdome. Not to mention, no doubt, W will derive some marketing value out of uh, congratulating themselves for running a limited capacity event. And then, some renewed optimism about WWE stock, now over $50 
actually $55.50 as of the close of the market on Friday. It's been hovering in the 40s, in the high 40s, for quite a while here. If I look at the six-month chart uh, throughout the fall, down in, in, in the, the 30s at sometimes, in the high 30s, but mostly in the, in the 40s. But since, uh, let's see, since Halloween, basically, since the last WWE earnings call, it's been a pretty consistent climb here from way down to about 36 at the lowest point. $36 and then climbing all the way up to, again, $55.50 at close on Friday. What's causing all this? Not 10 pounds of gold, but rather renewed optimism from uh, stock firms like, stock analysis firms like Evercore and Guggenheim. Evercore on the 19th, which is Tuesday, uh, upgraded its uh, rating on the W stock from in line to now outperform. Evercore puts a stock price target of $58 on uh, WB. Meanwhile, Guggenheim analyst Curry Baker, who we hear on the earnings calls, reiterated his buy rating for WB stock and a price target of $66, basing that idea on three key catalysts. Number one, a network licensing deal. That's the potential of WB to sell network and or pay-per-view content to a major media streaming company. Number two, a Mina TV rights deal, which I, I have uh, I have not been optimistic will get done, but uh, that is a key catalyst for him. Number two. And number three, sponsorship revenue. From a sports fee perspective, uh, Guggenheim believes that the rights fee per regular season viewer hour is only $1.04, which is substantially below the rate that NBA on ESPN gets at $3.04, substantially below the rate that UFC gets from ESPN at $2.77. NFL on ESPN is getting $2.21. MLB on Fox, a dollar and a half. And NHL from NBC getting a dollar thirty-two. Again, WWE only getting a dollar and four cents. Is that the appropriate uh uh amount of money per game or in this case per episode of of raw or smackdown per viewer hour i don't know but curry baker thinks that is substantially underpriced i'm reading this from a summary of the analysis on streetinsider.com the analyst believes that the cost delta offers substantial relative value stating quote we view shares as attractive at current levels trading at about 11 times our normalized EV slash EBITDA multiple versus a peer comp of live event companies trading at about 20 times 2021 EV slash EBITDA. You got that? I don't. Even without catalysts in our numbers. As shown in the data, we believe that, number one, WWE remains an attractive value proposition to TV networks in the U.S. And, number two, the economics are such that there is potential for a win-win-win network licensing deal to be constructed. So we've got optimism about a future TV rights deal, something that will be negotiated next year through 2023. And we've got optimism about a pay-per-view slash network rights deal. These are jobs for Nick Khan to get done, I suppose. Um, I, I am pretty optimistic that WWE will get some sort of uh, moderate 
increase to its US TV rights fees, uh, which would be something that we would end up hearing about around the spring of 2023. Things can change between then and now, but we'll see. WWE remains a highly ranked, uh, Raw and SmackDown anyway, remain highly ranked programs on their nights. And almost no matter how low the viewership drops, as long as they remain highly ranked among other programs, I remain pretty optimistic that they'll continue to rake in large amounts of revenue for the rights to those programs in the U.S. And there's a short-term reason to be optimistic about maybe this year. Who knows? Uh, W will deal out uh, the rights to pay-per-views and maybe other network content to a a major media company which could do whatever they want with it, but probably put some of it on a streaming service. Maybe the uh, potential partners for those include Peacock, ESPN+, and maybe the uh, there are numerous other players obviously getting into the streaming business. Uh, one of the issues I've, I've stressed is I just, just don't know what the obvious way is to sell a product like that ultimately to consumers uh, when we're talking about a product that has had its price point uh, really stretched out uh, in recent years where you've got uh, a product that used to be charged uh, $60 for. Now in the last seven years, we've taught consumers that this product is worth $10. So I don't know what the best way is to offer it or to monetize it. And I think that that seems to me that that would complicate a deal. What am I, I'm, I'm buying a, a valuable product, but it's not clear to me how to sell that product or what the return is that I can get on selling that product. And finally, I want to talk about the banking theory of education. And uh, this may sound like some highfalutin stuff, but I think it will actually sound quite familiar to uh, anyone who is familiar with pro wrestling training or just reads things on Twitter related to what people should or shouldn't do in the ring as performers, etc. So I, I guess what I want to argue to you here is that the pro wrestling industry is ultimately, it's a craft, the, the, being a pro wrestler is a craft, requires skill, it's a complicated craft, and this is obviously a craft that is taught to people down through the generations. But my point is that, I don't think anyone would dispute that. Uh, what, I, what I think is more controversial is that my, my view is that the, pro, the knowledge base in the pro wrestling industry, certainly at least in the U.S., which is the region that I'm most familiar with, has been, is not very uh, welcoming or doesn't really use critical thought. It's more authoritarian. And because it is more authoritarian than, than being something that makes use of critical thought, it is more prone to teach people to do things that aren't effective toward the stated goal of getting over being good professional wrestlers what we ideally imagine that means to be a good professional wrestler, uh, get over, draw interest, make money, etc. Rather, this sort of authoritarian uh, complex around the pro wrestling knowledge base, rather than 
making people good, effective pro wrestlers does more to affirm, to be blunt, the egos uh, that are incumbent in the pro wrestling industry. Maybe to put it another way, too often pro re- teaching pro wrestling has been about pleasing the teacher rather than about figuring out what the truth is about being a, a good professional wrestler. And I think there's just a sort of plane of society where pro wrestling lives. It's never, the, the way that pro wrestling is taught is never really challenged. And then compounding that, you've got a power structure that is um, controlled by the incumbent people in pro wrestling who uh, benefit from that authoritarian view of teaching wrestling. And these are the people who decide who gets booked, who gets hired, who gets signed, etc. So anyway, there is a uh, philosopher of education named Paulo Freire. He was a Brazilian guy, and he wrote a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which talks about this banking model of education. I will just read from the Wikipedia page here, like any good pro wrestling commentator. The banking model of education is a term used by Paulo Freire to describe a critique of the traditional education system. The name refers to the metaphor of students as containers into which educators must put knowledge. Freire argued that this model reinforces a lack of critical thinking and knowledge ownership in students, which in turn reinforces oppression, in contrast to Freire's understanding of knowledge as the result of a human creative process. Freire writes that instead of communicating, the teacher issues deposits, which the students patiently receive, memorize, and repeat. This is the banking conception of education in which the scope of action allowed to students extends only as far as receiving, filing, and storing the deposits. Education is therefore seen as a process of depositing knowledge into passive students. Teachers are the epistemological authority in this system, and students' pre-existing knowledge is ignored, aside from what was expected to be deposited into them earlier. Sounds like a pro wrestling training seminar. Anyway, he writes, In the banking conception of education, knowledge is a gift bestowed by those who consider themselves knowledgeable upon whom they consider to know nothing. The teacher presents himself to his students as their necessary opposite. By considering their ignorance absolute, he justifies his own existence. In terms of Freire's thought, I think we can conceive of pro wrestlers in general, and again, at least in the United States, as an oppressed class who are bestowed supposed knowledge that uh, in some part, and uh, maybe in large part, has usefulness and truth to it, but is in no way bound to the truth. What do I mean by this? I think one way of saying this is that pro wrestlers are taught what to do. They're not necessarily told why what they're taught to do is the right thing to do. And uh, I think pro wrestling especially is... This is a problem for pro wrestling, especially because pro wrestling is always changing. The business is always changing. What works today will not be what worked 
uh, 10, 20 years ago will not be what works 10, 20 years from now. What works today in front of one given audience will not necessarily be what works today in front of a different audience somewhere else. But this is almost never accounted for in my experience. We are taught by teachers or trainers or people who I sometimes call our wise elders who speak as if pro wrestling has been one craft with one audience which has never changed. The audience that they got over with in the 80s or 90s or some other era is presented as if it is the exact same audience that we are now performing for today, which could not be further from the truth. We, we are being taught by wise elders who got over in a different technological moment. I think pro wrestling is like technology. We, be, we are being taught by wise elders who got over at a different technological moment than the one we are conducting ourselves in. And this wise elder uh, never had to get over for the first time in our environment. And again, that is not to say that the wise elders do not have a great deal of useful knowledge, essential knowledge, to teach us. Just that, they are still teaching us how to work with old technology. And that ignorance is handed down through the generations. As Freire writes, the more meekly the receptacles permit themselves to be filled, the better students they are. That, that the best kind of wrestling student is the kind that listens to the teacher and takes everything they have to say wholesale and basically accepts their authoritarian dictates. And you can see how this works not only epistemologically, not just in terms of pleasing the teacher, but in terms of pleasing an entire power structure of peers, bookers, promoters, who have everything to do with the potential of your career in pro wrestling. In short, the U.S. pro wrestling industry is one that worships incumbent power rather than the truth. In fact, it cannot even identify the truth if it is not recognized by incumbent power. What do I mean by incumbent power? Just, just the people who are in control and have the power and influence, whether that's promoters or just influential wrestlers who have become powerful or become influential through the recognition of other people of authority and promoters and bookers and things of that nature. And that brings me to the comments of one Mark Calloway who said on a podcast this week about the current WB product. He said, quote, I try, it's tough right now for me. The product has changed so much and it's kind of off. I'll probably piss some people off, but they need to hear it. It is what it is. To the young guys who may think, he's a bitter old guy, I'm not bitter. I did my time, I walked away when I wanted to walk away. I just think the product is a little soft. There's guys here and there that have an edge to them, but there's too much pretty and not enough substance, I think, right now. He goes on. One of the big things that happened was that the generation before, we all got old at the same time, so there weren't enough guys to work with the young guys. You can listen to the fans on the internet, or you can listen to someone who's been there and done it. 
There was just not enough of the merging of the young and new talent. We had Stone Cold, Rock, Triple H, Shawn Michaels. We were all working together, and then we all aged out. We aged out, and it left all these young guys to learn with more young guys, and the product changed. He goes on, the Performance Center is helping. We got Triple H, who's trying to get some of the toothpaste back in the tube, take a step back to move forward to try and get the product more edge. I think that's what's missing. End quote. That's a terrific example of someone who's achieved a great deal of status and influence in the pro wrestling industry and who identifies the problems with pro wrestling currently as having to do with not the people who have the power and the influence, but with the people who have the least power and influence. That is, of course, the wrestlers and, if you're listening to them at all, the fans on the internet. And in Mr. Callaway's view, the only remedy being applied right now is Triple H's Performance Center, which might bring some edge back to WWE. The more meekly the receptacles permit themselves to be filled, the better students they are. That's the best way to appeal to power. Appealing to the truth doesn't necessarily advance your career, but appealing to power, at least in the short term, certainly will. It cannot possibly be the case that the people with the most power and influence in WWE are the people who are responsible for the decline in the quality of the content and in the popularity of the brand. It must be the wrestler's fault. And it may even be the contracted WWE wrestler's uh, psychological, emotional interest to internalize that, to believe that as well, rather than the truth that uh, just because somebody has had a great deal of success, that does not necessarily mean that they are credible in regards to the truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that the knowledge that they may deposit on you is truthful knowledge that is useful to you. Because underlying a lot of this WrestleNomic stuff that I talk about, there seems to be an opinion in me about how pro wrestling could be a lot more popular, successful, profitable than it is, and it is not, in large part, maybe completely, due to a lack of critical thought in favor of worshipping the ideas and personalities that are already well established, which keep pro wrestling where it is, or worse, that take wrestling backwards. I think the fact that so few men, and they basically are all men, have controlled U.S. pro wrestling for the last 30 years or so is just one signal that that's what's going on. And while wrestlers have advanced uh, the in-ring craft of pro wrestling, and new media has allowed them to more easily study a wide variety of international styles, the prevailing creative analysis of pro wrestling within the industry remains severely antiquated. And that is to the economic detriment of everyone involved. And on that note, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, you can support at patreon.com slash You can read all of my written work at russellnomics.com ad-free. You can follow Russellnomics at Russellnomics 
You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time. Go Bills. Go Bills.